This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. Each year, thousands of book lovers of all ages visit the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the Library of Congress National Book Festival, co-chaired in 2009 by President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. Now in its ninth year, this free event, held Saturday, September 26th on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., will spark readers' passion for learning as they interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. Even if you can't attend the festival in person, you can still participate online. These podcast interviews with well-known authors and other materials are available through the National Book Festival website at www.loc.gov bookfest. It's now my honor to talk with the critically acclaimed author Jody Pico. Ms. Pico has written an array of admired novels, including the New York Times bestsellers Change of Heart, Handle with Care, and My Sister's Keeper, for which she received the Margaret Alexander Edwards Award. My Sister's Keeper was also recently released as a successful film starring Cameron Diaz and Alec Baldwin. Ms. Pico has also penned several issues of Wonder Woman for DC Comics. Her upcoming novel, House Rules, is due for release in 2010. Ms. Pico, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Pleasure to talk with you. Let's start out by talking about the new novel, House Rules. Tell us about that, if you would. Well, House Rules is coming out in March, and it actually is the story of a uh, teenage boy who has Asperger's Syndrome. And uh, like many kids with Asperger's, he is very bright, very quirky, and has a real special localized passion for one topic. His happens to be crime scene analysis, and that means that he tends to show up courtesy of a police scanner at a lot of crime scenes to tell the police what they're doing wrong. And uh, everything is, is going well for him and his family until he winds up accused of a crime himself. And the reason I wrote the book was because I wanted to look at how our justice system works very, very well if you communicate a certain way. If you don't communicate a certain way, then it all sort of goes to hell in a handbasket very quickly. Mm. And a lot of the hallmark behaviors of autism, which many of us are familiar with now, either with our own kids or children that we've seen in school, um, look like guilt to someone in the justice system. Think about, for example, someone who recoils if you try to touch them, someone who won't look you in the eye, someone who speaks with a very flat affect, or might even run if you try to ask too many questions. All of those are very typical behaviors for someone on the autism spectrum, but to a cop, they're going to look like guilt. Now, what, what inspired you to write about Asperger's syndrome? I think that's a term a lot of people haven't heard about. Yeah, you know, I, I think that Asperger's is a really interesting um, kind of autism. It is considered to be on the autism spectrum. It's high-functioning autism. And the really fascinating thing about a kid with Asperger's is that when you sit down and you talk to one of them, they, they can be incredibly enlightening. I mean, they know more about these subjects they love than anybody else, mm-hmm. so much so that when you want to leave the conversation, they miss all the social cues and they don't let you go. But they also, you can tell something's just not quite right. The, the hallmark, the calling card for Asperger's is a lack of interpretation of social cues. Kids with Asperger's, Um, don't make friends very easily. They don't understand why if they walk up to someone and hold a conversation that's totally one-sided, it's not really socially appropriate. Um, They don't realize what they look like to other kids, nor do they really care. Uh, You can just tell something's a little bit off, but they are very bright. The other problem that they'll have is that routine is incredibly important to them. So if you screw up a routine or if you mess with the system in any way, 
often a kid who is functioning perfectly well two seconds before might have an utter and complete breakdown. And, you know, that looks like a tantrum when a kid is four years old, but it looks a little different when the kid's 18 and is in a grocery store and is knocking jars off the shelf and needs to be physically restrained by a parent, which can be very challenging if your son, for example, is bigger than you are. Um, so it's a very interesting um, condition for me because the this this kid who is so incredibly intelligent and will present as incredibly intelligent it's often called the little professor syndrome when kids are younger because they sound so grown up when they speak. Um, you know, what looks normal one moment or even intelligent one moment can degenerate very quickly into something that you realize is not normal behavior at all. Now, I know that you, uh, you're you known for very intensive, I, I guess is a good word, research. You've, you've lived with an Amish farmer for a week. You went to jail for a day. Uh, you learned Wiccan love spells. You even followed a dog sled race on a snowmobile. Um, can you talk about that in the context of the current novel or anything that stands out in your mind is, is especially memorable? Yeah, I actually did speak to probably upwards of 50 kids with Asperger's, all of whom were totally different. I mean... You know, there was one kid who was completely fascinated by trains. There was another kid who could tell me everything that happened on um, a Disney show called The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. That was her special passion. And um, So you learn a lot talking to these kids. Mm-hmm. You also speak to their parents, you know, who have a very different experience than the kids do because one of the things that, that I kept seeing that came up um, when I talked to the parents was that although the kids, understood that they were not well-liked or that they didn't have any friends. It didn't really affect them. They just didn't care very much. But the parents cared a lot because they were socially adept enough to understand that their child was being marginalized, and any parent can relate to that. Um, So I spoke to all of their parents as well. Um, The other thing that, that sort of raised a really interesting red flag for me, I touch lightly on the vaccine debate and autism in this book because it really hasn't been discussed yet in literature, and it's still a very hot topic, and I think with what's going on in the news these days with healthcare, it's going to become an even hotter topic. And, you know, for me, asking parents whether they believe that vaccinations are in any way linked to autism opened up an enormous can of worms, because they're split almost 50-50. 50% of the parents believe there is an absolute and true and vital link and that someone really needs to look into this and address the immunization schedule. Um, The other half say there's absolutely no connection whatsoever, and they're just as vehemently opposed to believing that there is a connection. What was really intriguing to me, though, is that the big fear that people seem to have um, for parents who feel that vaccines are related to autism is that they'll stop immunizing their children. And I did not hear that from parents. What I heard was a call for... Um, the uh, the National Institute of Health or the CDC to recommend instead spreading out vaccines a little more so that they're not as concentrated uh, in early childhood um, to the point where they might, if there is a connection, uh, you know, be a trigger that that gets a kid who is genetically predisposed to becoming autistic um, kind of tips them over the edge. Now, you're pretty busy as a writer. Your, your book, Handle with Care, came out a little bit earlier this year, 2009. Uh, talk a little bit about that book. Handle with Care is a great book to talk about, actually, because um, it, it's sort of intimately tied to a lot of what's going on right now with healthcare. Um, it's the story of the O'Keefe family, which is Sean, the dad, Charlotte, the mom, 
Willow, um, a five-year-old with osteogenesis imperfecta, and her sister um, Amelia. And Willow's condition is a very, very rare one uh, that basically means she will suffer hundreds of broken bones over a lifetime, although mentally she is 100% as normal as anyone else. She will have a severely compromised physical existence. She probably won't be more than about three feet tall. She will have um, spinal rotting surgery and rotting surgery in her femurs. She'll have respiratory complications, severe scoliosis, um, a really tough and painful physical life. But mentally, she's a great, smart little girl. And like many other families that have a child with a disability, the O'Keeffe's realize that insurance doesn't even begin to cover what they need to make sure their child has a good life. And Charlotte, the mom, thinks that she has found an answer, a wrongful birth lawsuit that's filed against her obstetrician for not telling her in advance about Willow's condition might lead to a really big monetary payout. But it also means standing up in court and saying, if I'd known this in advance, I would have terminated this pregnancy, Mm. words that her own daughter will hear her say and will understand her saying. Mm. And it's not if that isn't just bad enough, the obstetrician that she'll be suing happens to be her best friend. Now, I, I think this is a good segue into the next question. Uh, you often deal with the theme of children in peril. Why, why do you like to focus on that? You know, I don't think... I, I've, I've, been, I've heard that before. The New York Times wrote a piece about me this spring, and they said that, and I laughed. I didn't realize that was a subcategory of genre <laughs> literature, but maybe I'm the only one in it. Um, I don't think I really write always about children in peril. I think I write about families in crisis. And that may be, um, you know, sort of a sliver of that. I think I like to put ordinary people into extraordinary situations. And I do believe that any time something happens to one of your kids, whether it's illness or whether it's um, a kidnapping or whether it's, um, you know, uh, some kind of legal conundrum, or whether it's uh, them suffering from depression, who knows. But anything that upsets the balance of power in a family like that affects all of the members of the family. And that's really what I like to write about. I like to write about ordinary people, people who you probably recognize or, or feel like you know, who've been put into an extraordinary situation by circumstance. You yourself are a mother of three. How do your own experiences as a mother uh, influence your, your plots and your themes? They actually influence me greatly. I probably wouldn't write about kids at all if I hadn't had them. (laughs) I do think motherhood is probably the hardest job anyone can do. And uh, maybe that's why I'm so tough on my mother characters. But I think um, I tend to write about the things that superstitiously I'm most afraid of. You know, like a child getting sick or um, like uh, a child facing a a teen suicide pact. Um, Something like that is, is probably in the back of my mind. If I write about it, I think, clearly, I won't have to live it in real life. Now, that is ridiculous. It would, there's no immunity involved. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, there is a part of me that thinks maybe if I cover all my, my bases in fiction, then I can protect my family a little. And vice versa, although I don't write very much about things that happen in my life, because I lead a, a wonderfully charmed life as opposed to my characters, um, there have been incidents that have led to fiction, uh, most directly was My Sister's Keeper, where I wound up writing about a child who had a chronic health condition. And although my son was not, um, did not have leukemia, never had cancer, he did have a chronic condition that required him to have 13 surgeries. And so we were in and out of hospitals a lot, and that became a very comfortable place for me. 
and I found myself saying and doing things as a mom that I never would have expected until I was put in that situation. And a lot of that experience sort of bled its way onto the page of my sister's keeper. Yeah, and and just picking up on that, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, book was uh, turned into a movie. How heavily involved were you in the filming and the making of that film? Okay, so here's the truth, and here's what no one ever seems to know. <laughs> Unless you're J.K. Rowling, you really don't have any involvement in the film, for the most yeah. part. They, You know, you're lucky if they invite you to the set, to be honest. And uh, I really didn't have a lot of input into that, that uh, production. Um, you know, I think it had a terrific cast that surprised me. Uh, they did a much better job than I would have thought they, they, they would have done. Uh, I really enjoyed seeing the film. It was a great and interesting experience as a novelist. It was also a really tough experience because the producers of the film and the director decided to change the ending. Mm. And in the book, there's a big twist ending, and it's there for a reason. It's because I really wanted to leave the reader with a specific sentiment. By changing the ending of the movie, they changed the whole meaning of the story. And so that was really hard for me to swallow. I know a lot of my fans were disappointed. If they were disappointed, they could only imagine how I felt. Uh. But <laughs> you know, overall, it was a really intriguing experience because it wasn't one that I had before on the big screen. And um, you know, would I do it again? Yes, I would. But I might be a little warier the next time around. <laughs> Is it a little like giving up a kid for adoption for someone else to raise? I, I use that. I actually use that um, metaphor myself a lot. Uh-huh. And it is. You're not allowed to call up every day and say, do you feed her breakfast? You make what you hope is an informed decision, and you give the baby to a good family. And, you know, in the long run, I did. I I gave it to a terrific production company, a wonderful studio, a very talented director who created a really good story. It was a really good movie. It just wasn't the same as the book. I want to turn now to the comic books. You're only the second woman to write the Wonder Woman series, which uh, may be a little counterintuitive, but what drew you to that? Uh, It actually fell into my lap. I had written a book called The Tenth Circle that had a comic book embedded in it because one of the characters was a graphic novelist. And he was very reserved emotionally, and the only way he could really explain to the reader what was going on in his heart was to illustrate it so that you'd have to read about it and figure out what was going on um, in his mind. And I created this character called Wildclaw, had an artist draw this comic book that I created. And after the book was published, I got a call from an editor at DC Comics asking if I'd be interested in Wonder Woman. And I thought, you know, that is just, it's really nice, and it's kind of an honor, but I don't have time to write Wonder Woman. And I went downstairs, and I was telling my kids about it, and they all looked at me and said, Mom, you totally have to write Wonder Woman. (laughs) So I shuffled things around, and and I wound up doing it, and had a very good time. It was a real challenge for me, because when you're a novelist, you're all by yourself. You create everything from scratch. When you are a comic book writer, you're stepping into a tradition that, in Wonder Woman's case, goes back to 1941, Mm. and has had a lot of storylines and a lot of history, and you can't make all the fanboys and fangirls unhappy, so you have to be true to it. But you still want to be able to leave your stamp somehow on the character, or they, they wouldn't have asked you to do it in the first place. So I had to really think hard about what kind of storyline I wanted to bring to her and, uh, and get used to working collaboratively with you know, both an editor and an artist and a penciler and, and, and um, e- everyone involved in the process. It was really a really different writing experience for me. It was a lot of fun, but very challenging to work with a character who I had not created. And what do you feel that was unique or different that you brought to it? 
Oh, I totally changed the way people think about Wonder Woman. She's unlike Superman. She's um, she's similar to him in that she's flawless, right? She she mm-hmm. comes from the gods, but she didn't have the backstory like Clark Kent. She didn't really have anything that made you relate to her on a human level. So by putting her into this human environment where she's basically slumming it as a human and working in a, in a defense department capacity and giving her this partner who has, you know, a total crush on Wonder Woman but thinks that, that the alter ego that he's working with is a real jerk, um, you know, you first of all give her this dynamic, just a, a womanly dynamic that I think was really funny and fun to play with. But the biggest thing was to give her what I think all, all people growing up, whether you're female or male, you know, all of us have this, and that's sort of that issue of separating from our parents. How do we become our own people without um, dishonoring our parents who want us to be just like them? And that's going to be an even bigger problem, you know, for someone like Wonder Woman, whose mother is an Amazon queen. Mm. So <laughs> I, I basically gave her some mother issues. And uh, that was really fun. It was really fun to get to play those out and, and to play with Hippolyta and, uh, and bring the Amazons back. Hmm. What would you say to parents or teachers who think that maybe comics and graphic novels aren't necessarily a, a viable or legitimate form of, of quote-unquote literature? I actually think that right now graphic novels are some of the most cutting-edge literature out there because they really address social issues probably better than most fiction does. Um, I used to teach 8th grade English, and I was really a big proponent of the fact that if you want to get kids reading... You don't hand them George Eliot. You let them read something that's going to engage them at their interest level. Because if kids fall in love with the act of reading, then kids go on to read everything. And I've seen it play out over and over, not just with the kids I taught, but with my own kids and with the fans who have come to me um, because my books happen to be on summer reading lists and have won multiple young adult awards, although they're technically adult fiction. It's a great bridge to read one of my books um, and springboard into adult literature from that book. And I really value the, the institutions, the high schools and the middle schools that have put my books on reading lists because hopefully they're compelling and realistic for teenagers, and that's why they get so involved with them. Uh, Jody Pico, before I let you go, is there anything else that's coming up for you uh, project-wise? Well, we've got um, the new book, House Rules, will be out mm-hmm. in March, which I'm very excited about, and I'll be doing a great big tour all over the U.S. for that, so it'll be nice to meet people again, and, and I will get off the phone right now and actually get <laughs> back to writing the 2011 book, which is on my screen as we speak. Oh, my goodness. Um, any preview of that or a little hint? Yeah, uh, I'm really excited about that book, actually, because I'm kind of wondering how it hasn't been written yet. But it is, uh, hmm. it's the story about um, embryo donation and gay rights and what it means to be a family. And uh, that's all I'm going to say, but I will tell hmm. you, it's a really good one and a really important one. Well, uh, the current book is Handle with Care. The upcoming book in March is House Rules. Uh, Jody Picoast, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. And we'll definitely be excited to hear more from you at the National Book Festival. That's on Saturday, September 26th on the National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Free and open to the public, as always. For more details and a complete list of participating authors, visit www.loc.gov bookfest. From the Library of Congress, this is Matt Raymond. Thank you so much for listening.